The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today, I'm talking with Peter Tremaine, a Kiwi who lives in the United States and who spent 20 years as a pilot in the Royal New Zealand Air Force. So, tell me about um, how did you first get 
interested in aviation? Um, was it when you were a kid or? Definitely as a kid. Uh, my dad, uh, you probably don't know this, but my dad was uh, Air Force and uh, oh. he was a, he finished as a squadron leader, uh, engineering officer, and uh, he'd uh, joined the Air Force shortly before Second World War. Uh, he was a, a, a motor mechanic in Papatawi. Uh, he and his father, my grandfather, had a garage there uh, on Station Road in Papatawi. Yep. Dad got into the Air Force and ended up at New Plymouth uh, and uh, became, during the Second World War, he spent most of the time in the islands. Uh, I guess he was a flight lieutenant eventually there. Uh, and he had a group of maintenance guys. They called them a servicing unit, I guess it was. And they traveled from island to island, um, places like Jackano Bay, uh, Green Island, Bougainville. And their speciality was uh, uh, working on corsairs. All oh, right. And uh, half the maintenance guys he had with him were U.S. Marines. And one of the reasons, I understand, was that the models that we had, the Corsair models, were actually uh, marine versions. And so he went right through the war uh, in the islands and uh, was mentioned in dispatches for one of the raids over, I guess he was on one of the, one of the flights, uh, raids on Rabaul. Yep. Uh, and uh, in whatever they were, Venturers, I guess, in those days. Yep. And um, when he came back from the war, he went back into the motor business with, uh, with his father, um, but eventually started working with the number one territorial air force uh, squadron in uh, Fenuapai. Okay. And uh, they had Harvards uh, in those days uh, when I was probably 10 years old or 11 years old. Uh, but they got some brand new uh, Mustangs, P-51Ds, and... I got to sit in one of those uh, as they when they were taking them out of the mothballs, right. and uh, I can clearly remember to this day sitting in there and and thinking, "Wow, this is what I want to do." And I was probably I was probably eleven, I guess, at the time. Okay. And so that's how it all started. Uh, oh, um, while I was out, it was actually at Ardmore that they uh, were pulling the. Uh, Pulling the stuff off these uh, these P fifty ones, yep. And uh, while we were there, they there was a some of the Air Force pilots uh, were testing them, and um, they were joined in the circuit by a fast moving vampire, uh, and did some tail chasing, which was very impressive. And the word came back, and I you know remember this fairly clearly as well, that the Mustang could outturn the vampire at low level but not at 20,000 feet, and, and it was as simple as that. So okay. uh, no, uh, no ejection seats, uh, the FB, FB-5s, uh, which they were flying, the single vampire, which I later flew, uh, did not have ejection seats in them. So I remember them wearing their parachutes and all that kind of thing. So the next move on my part, uh, Dad actually ended up, joining permanently again, a permanent Air Force, and ended up as the engineering officer for number 41 squadron in Changi when they first went there with the Bristol freighters. Ah, oh, right. So I followed shortly afterwards. 
um, he had left as engineering officer by that time when I arrived at on the Bristol Freighters at Changi and uh, let's see 1960 I first went there and uh, the um, I was going to say about the, va the vampires and the uh, oh I, I said to dad when uh, you know after this great experience of sitting in uh, in, in the P-51s and of course I'd, I'd been down at Hamilton at Rukahia uh, when a lot of the Corsairs were still pretty much intact and they were for sale for five pounds, I believe, if you could yep. cart them away. And uh, remember sitting in one of the cockpits of those at, uh, at Rukahia. So that was another little experience. So I said to Dad, well, uh, if I'm going to be a pilot you know, in the, the RNCDF, what do I have to do? Uh, I hadn't started high school at that point. And so he got some information from one of the... Uh, one of his pilot friends, uh, boss or whatever, and uh, said, well, you, you need to concentrate on maths, science, uh, engineering, mechanics, that kind of thing. So because uh, there was no intention of going to one of the fancy schools like Auckland Grammar or uh, King's, uh, Odoo College was where I was destined. And yeah. the key there was um, going into the industrial form, which was... Uh, uh, they called it industrial, but the stuff we studied, the maths teacher was superb uh, for the first three years there, just wonderful. And uh, we did science. Um, uh, let's see, oh, applied mechanics, that was one of the other things, electricity. Of course, they also did, um, we had to do woodwork and metalwork and et cetera for, for the people that were going to go on maybe in work in the railway workshops there uh, if they didn't get their school certificate. So um, it was the perfect grounding. And uh, so when I showed up in 1956 at the selection process at uh, Wigram, uh, I was able to easily pass all the tests, the written tests that they, they gave us. And uh, was uh, definitely, when, when I was selected and doing the whole pilot course thing, uh, I, I'd had exactly the right experience and, and the ability actually with, uh, with the maths and the, the science and so on to, to be able to pass the course. So that's, right. anyway, that was why, that's why I became a pilot. And I'd never, uh, I'd, I'd have to say, unlike a few of the pilots, pilot uh, cadets that showed up with me, I'd never been on an airplane. Okay. I never touched an airplane. And as it turned out, the instructors in those days, a lot of them uh, ex-World War II people, were uh, very happy to have it that way. They didn't want to have, have to unlearn you uh, from some flight school or in those days there were aero clubs, I guess. Uh, yeah. They liked to start, start from scratch. So if you said, right. hey, I've never, I, have, I know nothing. Uh, I've never touched an aeroplane controls, um, never even been for a flight. So uh, that suited them just fine. And I'd have to say later on as a flight instructor, when I went back to Wigram a few years later and, and was flight instructing on uh, Ab Ignitio on Harvard's, I preferred the same thing. I didn't, I didn't wish really anybody to tell me, well, when I was at the aero club, they told me to do this and that and everything else. Right. It was far better than to say, I know nothing. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, I can see that. So that was the background. Okay. So when you um, when you actually first started your pilot training, um, you went straight on to Harvard's in those days, didn't you? Correct. And um, we, uh, I think, I'm not sure of the timing here, but it was very close. We just missed my class, uh, 25 course, uh, having to go to Tari to fly Tiger Moths. Right. Because that's how it's been done, had been done. Uh, I believe you, you did a certain amount of time down there at Tari, and then you, uh, in, the, uh, in the Tiger Moth, uh, and then you came up to Wigram and um, then went on to the Harvards. Uh, but for us, uh, at that stage, we did, it was a year course. It started in January, was to be completed in uh, uh, December. And the first part was, and I'm just going looking at that parchment now because I got that best cadet thing. Uh, and that was after three months. So that was basically what they would call here boot camp. Right. And uh, it was, uh, we did a lot of, some aerodynamics, we did uh, math, we did numerous other things uh, associated with just being in the military and did a lot of shooting with uh, with our rifles, our 303s, brand guns, stand guns, uh, pistols, uh, which was all a lot of fun. And uh, when that three months was up, all these other people disappeared, or the, the, the CMT people, because it was the end. I, I think our class was probably the second to last of the compulsory military training people. And uh, so we were left with about 30 regulars, which included navigators uh, as well as pilots. And we had two Territorial Air Force guys who um, were both going to university and two NAC guys um, that were destined for NAC, two RAF guys uh, who would go after the first, the end of the first Harvard section. And uh, what else? We had, I guess that was about it, TAF, NAC, yeah. And uh, what happened was uh, when the CMT people all disappeared, the rest of us went into six weeks of uh, officer, officer cadet training. Yep. And uh, that was pretty intense. Uh, a lot more relaxation, though, from barracks. We had two-person rooms or cubicles. So, uh, uh, But it was all spit and polish stuff. And But it was essentially it was officer training, leadership um, the manuals, uh, officer manuals, uh, living in an officer me officer's mess, uh, which we didn't exactly at that time. We we were told how it was going to be because there were two officer's messes at Wigram. One was um, uh, was known as number two officer's mess, and that's where we were destined after we completed uh, the officer school, at which time we would become acting pilot officers. Right. So we did that. And then uh, that took us, I guess, to um, pretty much four, four and a half months or whatever from when we started. The rest of the year was taken up with uh, probably, th I guess it had to be three and a half months on, on the Harvard in is a, is a ab initio ba basic uh, stuff. And then finally another three and a half months 
to do all the applied stuff, which included uh, mainly instrument stuff, gunnery, bombing, uh, formation. Um, and uh, so that's how it was split up. And the, the whole course was uh, flight time, 200 hours, thereabouts. Coming out with uh, an instrument rating, which was known as a white instrument rating in those days, uh, and that was all done on the back of the Harvard, uh, under a hood. Yep. Uh, couldn't see a thing. And uh, a lot of basic, uh, what was called limited panel instrument flying, where the artificial horizon was caged and the DI was caged. And all you had was uh, the airspeed indicator, the VSI, uh, the altimeter, and a very basic compass. Uh, and, of course, the power instruments. Uh, the boost and the RPM, uh, pretty challenging, really, really challenging. In fact, uh, the more I look back on it now, uh, most difficult instrument training you could ever imagine. And in between all this, we had to do uh, time in the link trainers, and uh, that, that they weren't like a simulator. Believe me, they were. That was something quite different. And they were just as bad as being in the back of the Harvard without the noise uh, and without the G forces and all the other various things. Right. But um, uh, I'd have to say we were very lucky that we ended at that particular time, 1957. Uh, many of our, or half of our instructors, had wartime experience. So they were, we were able to feed off that. Some of them had trained in Canada on, on Harvards there. Others are trained in New Zealand. Some are trained in the RAF. And uh, uh, they were a pretty, very much an inspiring group of instructors. And uh, they were hard taskmasters, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, out of that whole thing, the, not many of us came out the far end. And that was, that was pretty much par for the course, um, literally, because... Uh, I think out of the original regular pilots that we had, maybe there was 20, 24 of us, 20 of us, something like that. Really only about 10 finished okay. at, at the end and graduated. Wow. So it was tough. I had tough days. But uh, as I've said, commented on my website there, that it was the most difficult thing I'd ever done and ever had to do again. Um, everything actually became relatively easy. In the aviation world, uh, after that wings course, right? Yeah. Right. So, so that that, that um, point about how many didn't complete the course had that been around about the same numbers before when uh, pilots were starting on the Tiger Moth? Uh, I think they used to. Uh, they'd lost a few people on the Tiger Moth, um, even uh, yeah. possibly, and uh, the Harvard certainly was. When you look back, it was not an easy airplane to uh, to be your first airplane. Right. I think I, in my group, the first guy to go solo probably did it in 12 and a half hours. Uh, took me 15. Uh, took some people you know, 18 or 19 hours. Uh, right. So that was a bit of an indication. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it was challenging. The airplane um, was obviously very exciting to fly. Uh, but it, it was challenging, and it was it was a beast that you really had to control. And um, 
with a firm hand. There was no doubt about it because it'd get away on you so easily. Um, even during during takeoff was probably one of the most critical things, like it was on the Mustang, uh, because of the swing and trying to keep it straight. And uh, every time you changed the power in flight or the speed, you had to change the rudder trim because the fin had been jacked round two or three degrees to compensate uh, for during takeoff was one of the reasons and kind of a normal cruise. So, um, uh, and then of course it was all aerobatics. Uh, we did aerobatics constantly. We spun the aeroplane every flight probably. I probably have done a thousand spins in the darn thing, maybe more. Uh, intentional spins, of course, you force yourself in. You've got to put it into it. But you did definitely had to, once it was in the spin, it ne didn't, wouldn't necessarily come out on its own. So, um, and we would even do that on instruments. I think that was probably one of the, one of the most fantastic things. And that was limited panel because you had to cage the DI, the DI and the artificial horizon. Otherwise, the thing is just toppled. So, um, uh, yeah, it was a lot of difficult stuff in it. But uh, once you mastered the thing enough to where you were safe, uh, it was really, it was a joy to fly. And then, of course, towards the end, we got into the gunnery, air-to-air -air gunnery, uh, shooting at a towed target uh, with a 303, a single gun. Um, yeah. We had a gun camera that uh, we could assess uh, what we were doing as well on the ground. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, formation, uh, tail chasing, um, battle formation, low-level battle, all those kind of things. It was it was pretty exciting. It really was. And at the Harvard, you know, makes a lot of noise, but it doesn't go all that fast. That's why it's such an impressive uh, airplane for uh, air shows uh, to this day. So, uh, but anyway, the loss, the loss of people, yeah, they they were they went for different reasons and. What I would say to my students years later, they would, they would say to me when they started, well, how, how do we pass this course? I said, well, from my own experience and observation, you have to be at least average in everything, the three disciplines. One was the academics, which actually people would fail even toward the end, um, which you were constantly bombarded with tests. Um, we'd fly half the day and do academics the other half day. Uh, then there was the leadership stuff and um, marching and all the other rigmarole uh, of being an officer and a military guy. Uh, and then the third, the third thing was flying the airplane. And, uh, and I've said it often, it's no good being a, a great uh, academic uh, on the subjects if, if you can't fly the airplane or vice versa. So I said, all you have to try and do is keep it all together and in a balance, and uh, because the academic works there, definitely got to fly the airplane uh, and keep up with that. And if you have a bad day flying, uh, as a student, where you've got the instructing and uh, you've got a test in the afternoon, a, a written test on something, aerodynamics or whatever, uh, you can't just fall over and say, well, I'm going to fail anyway. You've just got to get on with it. And I'm sure... That's the way I got through, uh, and I'm sure looking at some of my students over the years, 
later, that's the reason they got through as well. Most of us were just average on, on all things. You know, we weren't perfect. Some yeah. were. Some were perfect at flying. Uh, some were pretty sharp on the academics and, uh, and so on. So it was um, it's a mind game. Uh, a lot of the time, really was to s stay with it. it the, it's it's like that movie, The Officer and a Gentleman. Um, you know, one one consideration, or it, it's just you you had to really work at it. I don't know how it is these days. Um, probably the requirements when you show up, uh, you have to have more academic background, possibly tertiary. I don't know. I don't know what what they're doing these days, what they're requiring. They'd certainly do it here. But I would say, years later, having just a high school uh, background, uh, but a very good one, that I could, um, I, some of my students uh, at Orion Air, when I was an engineering instructor, and I'd be teaching them about the 727, uh, I would ask them some simple aerodynamic question about lift and drag or whatever it was and draw the diagram. And these people, most of them had, they wouldn't have been in the military or in, in the airline business if they hadn't have had at least a, a bachelor of science, maybe yeah. master of science. And they would look at me blankly and they didn't understand what I was right doing. So I tell you, that Odahu College did me proud for sure. Right, right. You mentioned um, what they're doing today. It's interesting in the RNZF at the moment. They're just introducing the um, the Beechcraft Texan Two, and the, all the new uh, uh, trainees from the next course, when when this is fully operational, will go straight onto that. They've, they've got rid of the air trainers, and um, it's kind of the same situation as what you were in, going straight into a powerful aircraft as your ab initio uh, aircraft. It's, it's going to be an, an interesting sort of similarity there, I think. Yes, I, 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 I watched that with interest, the Texan thing, uh, mm. the fact that they were finally uh, getting a decent trainer. I, I can't believe for so many years they kept those little bug-smashing uh, things from Hamilton. I, I mean, really, uh, it seemed to me way back uh, when they first got those uh, and and didn't deal with the heart, got rid of the Harvards. I, I thought, this is not going to work out too well. There's not enough of a challenge uh, with this airplane. You can't really do enough with it. And, right. um, but I understand, and I missed out on this part of the RNCDF history in, in uh, those mid-years. They did end up going on to, was it a Marquis uh, jet of some sort, trainer? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Uh, which uh, which disappeared along with the Skyhawks, I guess. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, um, I I think um, my view about the Harvard, and it'll probably it'll be definitely the same with this Texan. Uh, I've always believed that uh, the um, sitting behind the instructor sitting behind in, in line the two cockpits is the way to go. Uh, right. I've the few airplanes that I've had to uh, do basic construction in uh, side by side is never really appealed to me. I, I thought it was uh, it was kind of difficult um, you, you, because you don't feel you're not on your own. At least um, even with you know with the instructor there, 
uh, in a uh, like a Texan or a uh, or say a Harvard or a uh, this new Texan, perfect, because the instructor can actually just let you. You're actually sitting in your, the seat you're going to be sitting in if, right. of, a, of a fighter, uh, and if he he keeps quiet and leaves you to it, you 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 feel that you're on your own. I think it'd right. be highly successful. Um, and uh, you know, turboprops are it's still a propeller airplane. It's a pity they don't don't have a jet, but uh, um, you know to uh, to convert to. But I guess in today's RNZAF, um, when you've only got turboprop airplanes, and um, apart from the what is it, the seven five seven, yeah, uh, that's it. What I guess turboprop is as good a way to go as any, and it'll be fast enough and high performance. They'll be able to do, uh, you know, all the aerobatic maneuvers and so on. Interesting enough, I um, I was reading reading an article uh, about. Uh, Jet upsets, uh, views on jet upsets in commercial airplanes, and we know there's been a few. Like the Air France uh, airplane over uh, over the Atlantic is a classic example where they've got an instrument problem and the, they lose control of the airplane and dive into the sea. Uh, probably the one in uh, out of Java, uh, going up to Singapore, wherever it was going just recently, is the same thing, and so. Finally, this concern about pilots can't fly these airplanes anymore manually. They've relied so much on all the automation, they haven't got a clue. But one of the interesting points it made, I never really thought about it, uh, it wasn't obvious. Unless you've been a military pilot, you've probably never been upside down in an airplane, not intentionally anyway. And uh, so, uh, our background in, uh, in airplanes that turn upside down and do aerobatics and so on, you understand all these, what we used to call, not jet upsets, that's sort of the in, in term has been for a few years, but we used to call it uh, recovery from unusual attitudes and right. um, how to recognize it on instruments and, uh, you know, if it's uh, IMC out there or night or whatever. So, uh, and recovering from spins. So I guess a lot of these airlines now, uh, including in a particular Air France, are actually taking their pilots back out there, putting them into little bug smashers that have got an aerobatic capability and turning them upside down and saying this is a spin and how to get out of it and so on. So um, at least, uh, you know, for the RNCDF, I think currently that would be a really good airplane for, for their training. And um, starting from scratch, why not? You know, if you could t teach a person to fly a Harvard, so many people over the years, and it dates back to World War II, really, uh, is um, you can teach them to fly anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you have um, any accidents uh, on your course? Were, were there um, any incidents at all, flying, flying boys? Yeah, uh, yeah there was. Um, the, um, uh, let's see, we had um, uh, the... Class, uh, no, actually, the day I did my first solo, there was a there was a guy that had been over in uh, uh, Point Cook. Uh, he'd gone through the Australian uh, Air Force Academy, whatever they called it over there, and he yeah. was back with CFS, come back to New Zealand, and uh, he um, he dove a Harvard. It went vertically into uh, the lake. 
uh, like uh, whatever it is down south, and um, buried itself about twenty or thirty feet into the into the uh, uh, soil. Now I, I you know, I, it was I got back and landed, shaking myself from my own <laughs> first solo, and they said, "Oh, the harvest just crashed." Uh oh, you know, and uh, but it. Uh, it, uh, he was on board. I, I think the, the conclusion was that he'd committed suicide, which is you know a terrible shame. Um, we had, we had a few minor incidents where obviously somebody had dragged uh, a fence, low flying, and uh, because there was a wire mark down around the, uh, the wheel at the back. Yeah. Uh, and. There was some I got hauled in for that as well because they said, "Weren't you flying this airplane?" Someone I said, "Well, I didn't do it. Flew at last. It was this guy, one of the other crew members, and I'm pretty sure it was him. I know it wasn't me." What yeah. what we would do is you know, force landing without power all the way around uh, the Canterbury area. There we would uh, uh, we would go through the motions and do the glide all the way down uh, to somebody's uh, cow paddock and. Uh, and you know, at the last moment, put the power on and climb away. And uh, I think uh, this guy, he he dragged a dragged a fence, the top of a fence. Wow. Uh, there'd been, uh, but up until then, uh, you know, in the years before, there was uh, normally there'd be one crash about every six months, generally showing off to girlfriends or whatever it may have been. I think the course before me, or two courses before me, just. Um, student pilot in a Harvard, uh, he'd beaten up his uh, girlfriend's farm house at low level, uh, pulled up and went, uh, of all things in a Harvard, what you don't do is, is roll the airplane at a low level because you're going to lose height. Uh, the carbureted, uh, the engine quits uh, as you get halfway around with a little bit of negative G and the engine quits. So he, he splashed down upside down not far from his girlfriend's house. Uh, so that was a, you know, that happened when we were all warned about it and don't go low flying, unauthorized low flying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but our, we got through unscathed, the, um, uh, you know, without any, any deaths. Yeah. Uh, until, yeah, that was it. All right. Oh, that's good. And I guess the, the next phase uh, would be getting into the jets, wouldn't it? Well, for me, I was—I um, didn't go immediately uh, to the jets. I was—they uh, uh, actually posted me to Bristol Freighters, and uh, right. from course, which is a little disappointing. Um, three of our people went to uh, Vampires, uh, but to, before you could go to Bristol Freighter, you had to go to what they called MECU, which was at uh, Ahakia, and. Uh, to do multi-engine conversion on the Devon, right, and so that's what we did, two of us, and uh, that involved a lot, a lot of asymmetric stuff, obviously, because that was what it was all about in those days. Two-engine airplane, you know, if uh, a dead foot, dead engine, live foot, um, uh, live engine, whatever, uh, and um, uh, the Canberra guys were coming on board about that time as well and they had to go through the same exercise not on the not on the Devons but on their own Canberras right. uh, and uh, 
Then we did a lot of navigation stuff, radio navigation stuff. You've got to understand, in 1957 and 58, uh, there were only NDBs in New Zealand. Uh, there was um, uh, three radio ranges, uh, one at uh, Christchurch and another one at uh, Fenuapai. And the other one, I guess, was down at whatever the airfield was north of Wellington, because Wellington hadn't been built at that stage. It was in the process of being built. Right. And, uh, but otherwise, the NDBs. And in the, uh, <clears throat> in the Devons and the Bristol Freighters, and I guess in the, uh, the Hastings, they had Rebecca, Rebecca and Babs. They probably never heard of this thing. It was a cathode ray tube thing. So you had to have somebody, another pilot, who would look into this thing. And uh, you, you actually could get dis, dis, dense through the Rebecca portion of it. Um, you could actually get a um, distance. Uh, the Babs was uh, was actually like a a poor man's ILS in those days. You could you could get a distance and left and right off localizer, which was actually a little van that sat at the end of the uh, runway. So that that was a an RAF thing from World War Two. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, there was nothing else. Uh, the uh, the Devon had one ADF. Uh, so you could do standard ADF approaches, uh, which we did all the time. That was all you could do, actually. And you could, uh, radio navigation was from NDB to NDB. Um, and uh, the Bristol freighter was the same. And that Bristol freighter did not change until well into the Vietnam War, when we were actually uh, without all the things we needed to survive over Vietnam, namely uh, TACAN, uh, UHF comms, uh, and an IFF transponder. Right. Uh, so um, it was just amazing that uh, we, we flew that airplane all around Asia and the Pacific and so on just with two ADFs uh, and this hokey Rebecca thing, which really only worked near RAF stations and uh, in uh, New Zealand, hopeless in Australia. Australia had its own DME system, which they still do. Unbelievable. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So um, anyway, Bristol freighters went on to the Bristol freighter. Uh, did a year and a half, and uh, did a trip to Singapore, um, and then I volunteered for the Antarctic. And uh, so I spent six months in Christchurch, back at Wigram, flying Harvards, um, doing instrument training and all kinds of specialist stuff. Uh, then the Beaver, we, um, I got the Beaver out of mothballs and uh, we, uh, we started flying around with that, uh, which was a lot of fun, uh, just on its wheels until we got up onto the glacier and then we, we had the wheel ski uh, configuration. So that was 1959 yep. and we had five pilots five maintenance guys, and uh, we did a bunch of uh, specialist uh, mountain stuff with uh, Harry Ears, the, uh, the great alpinist, and uh, uh, doing crevasse extraction, et cetera, et cetera, and how to survive in extreme cold, build, build igloos, the whole lot. Uh, <clears throat> and when that training, oh, and we also, uh, we had the Oster, the Antarctic Oster, 1707, 1707. 
And it was uh, a Mark, I think it was a Mark 7 Oster uh, used by the British Army for uh, AOP work. And uh, I think that the highest powered one was the AO9, the last one. But this thing was, compared with the normal Oster, was actually quite a nice aeroplane to fly. And um, it had a steel uh, metal propeller instead of a wooden one. It had a um, shotgun starter, um, so you didn't have to go out there and swing it. You um, six shotgun shells in a in a device that you was underneath the panel, and uh, when you want it ready to start, you pull the handle and the shotgun shell fired, and it turned the engine over, which is kind of fun. Okay. And uh, uh, it had a uh, had an HF radio in it. Marconi thing, uh, which was near useless, and a, an AD, some ADF trailing antenna, uh, and the Bieber was a little bit more complex. It, it, its equipment, it had a you could actually use a Morse key in that for HF, uh, and it had a polar path compass, which was kind of interesting. Um, that's what they called it. But it was it was essentially a a slaved compass, uh, but you could put it into a DG situation, which locked it in so you could use it for grid navigation. And we carried carried on our knees a thing called a Bigglesworth, Bigglesworth board. You could actually plot on it. Uh, it was uh, it had an arm and a like a drafting device, so you could fly the aeroplane because it had no autopilot. Uh, you could use the Morse key with uh, the other hand, one hand on the thing, and somehow, maybe with your mouth, you could fiddle around with this Bigglesworth board. I tell you, <laughs> it, it, it was it was really a work of art. And uh, uh, we learned to do uh, sunshots as well. So carry a sextant. Uh, not that we used the sextant in the airplane. It was if we crashed, uh, you know, and went down somewhere in the Antarctic, uh, you could sit there and uh, take three sunshots and be able to find a position. So we had to carry all the books uh, for uh, nautical tables, just like the navigators did. So that was different. Uh, it, it was it was quite an airplane. And uh, of course, it ended up at the end of that year uh, on the side of a mountain down in, uh, in Antarctica. Right. Uh, but anyway, as a result of that, I was posted back to Obviously, wasn't going to the Antarctic. I was posted back to uh, Bristol Freighters and uh, got an assignment to uh, Singapore with 41 Squadron, and uh, did that for a year and a half or whatever it was, and uh, then came back to go to the Antarctic with the U.S. Navy, and uh, okay. um, which was fun with them flying the, uh, the otters, single-engine otters. And getting my hands on a C-130 and so on and so forth. And then back to Wigram, um, and uh, uh, I eventually became an instructor there. But in between, I, I did get my chance to fly vampires briefly, uh, which I really, really enjoyed. Well, that was I wish I'd been doing that the whole time. It, it was so good. Um, well, but, but before we get onto the um, the jet part of it, can, can we just um? Look a little bit deeper into the Antarctic flying that you were doing down there, and also life in Antarctic. What was it like to live down there? Well, uh, 
Uh, I didn't go down there with uh, with the RNZAF group, as it turned out, because they, the whole thing was cancelled once the airplane crashed. And right. uh, uh, the intent was to... Um, they found an otter somewhere, single-engine otter, that they were going to uh, put into service, and I was going to be all involved in that very much. Uh, and... Uh, we were going to go down with a new team with with this otter. I think it was an XRAF one that had that um, was <clears throat> single engine piston uh, airplane, and uh, it was sitting somewhere. I think up at uh, Woodburn at the time. Anyway, the whole thing fell through for whatever reason. I think they did a deal uh, with the Americans, uh, with the U.S. Navy, and they said, "Look, uh, how about we we send somebody down." one of our guys down with you uh, and uh, to, to work with you and he can report back on you know the best choices to make. Now remember this is before the C-130s showed up. We weren't yep. even in the running for C-130s at that stage. And uh, so I was assigned to go down there with VX-6, the US Navy Squadron, uh, and I was to fly the Otter, and, uh, which is what it, basically what I did. Flew down by C-130, uh, one of the VX-6 ones, absolutely fantastic. I understood that there was a whole world of aviation that <laughs> we had touched in the RNZ. Right. And it was just worlds apart, and they were B models. But it was, uh, it was fantastic flying in uh, into the uh, ice runway. Uh, the ice runway was, incidentally, was, um, they'd carve it out of the sea ice, and you could land on there with wheels. Or you could land with skis or, or whatever. But um, later on, when we got our C-130s, we would land on the ice runway without didn't have skis. Yep. And uh, but of course the the U.S. Navy ones, w which were BLs, the L standing for ski, that uh, they could fly and land anywhere in the Antarctic, including of course the South Pole. Uh, they'd just drop the skis down and um, they would land at ten thousand feet. Keep the engines running up there. Um, hard to start otherwise. Not just the cold, but the uh, you know, the elevation. Um, and I did that. I I got I got round quite a lot uh, down there. Uh, initially on the Otter, uh, I was uh, I flew with a, another U.S. Navy pilot and a, a mechanic fellow. Uh, what do they call him? I had a special name for him. He was a he was a Navy petty officer. And uh, we would carry our survival gear with us, and which we'd use all the time. We would fly off hours and hours down to the Bedmore Glacier and set up camp, pull this tent out and uh, set it up on the snow. And um, we'd, we'd sit there for quite a number of days doing flights for uh, some of the uh, uh, groups that were uh, operating in the area down there with their sleds and so on. Only the New Zealanders had dogs still then. Uh, the Americans by that time were using uh, skidoos, the early uh, uh, skidoos. Right. And uh, we would take them out to various places um, that they were looking at, uh, geologists and um, glaciologists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we would fly back, and every now and again a C-130 would uh, come down and um, uh, drop a bunch of fuel for us. They would actually just uh, open the, they would touch down on skis, 
close to where we were and roll these uh, cans of uh, JP4 out the back. And uh, wow. yeah, there were 50, you know, 50 gallon uh, drums. Yep. And then we'd have to roll them back to where we were, where the airplane was, and uh, hand pump it in. And we'd hand pump it through a chamois, you know, the, the fuel, to, uh, to keep the water out of it. Uh, right. It was all very interesting. I mean, a lot of hard work out there. And uh, we'd dig a big hole in this flat surface, uh, like a big trench, and uh, put some steps down into it. Uh, had a big piece of canvas that we'd throw over the top put snow on the top of it and uh, we'd, that's where we cooked and um, socialized in there. Right. Yeah. Right. It was fun. Uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't any colder. I mean, one of the th odd things about it at the time was I, I couldn't understand how these Americans uh, could adapt so easily to these very low temperatures, whether it was operating the airplanes or whether it was just living there. And then, of course, yeah. I came here and started flying for these night freight operations. I tell you, in wintertime, whether you're in Chicago, when it's minus 20 up there, or up in Maine, where it's minus 30, or up in uh, Anchorage, I understood then. These guys right. these guys were used to it. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, unlike New Zealanders or Australians in particular, uh, got no concept of, you'd say, why don't we just stop operating? You know, every all the all the hydraulic fluid is leaking out of the struts and so on, you know, because it's so cold. It's like, just get on with it. Just fly. <laughs> and that's what they do, you know. And so it was interesting. The, uh, it took years until I started coming to the States in winter that, uh, you know, I realized where these guys, uh, what their background was. Oh, and a lot of them had um, operated up in uh, Greenland as well, at Thule. Right. So, right, yeah. um, in fact, I think, the squadron had been up there with their BLs for some time, so it was okay. you know they just had the background. But um, so that yeah that that actual training that you'd done with the RNZAF um, up in uh, in the mountains here before you went down there had that been sufficient to prepare you for what uh, what you were doing when you were down there, or was it a bit of a, a bit of a difference between the simulated training and the actual operation? Well, uh, I, I probably had more uh, background in survival as a result of the New Zealand training than any of the Americans that I flew with. Um, wow. they, uh, they hadn't done anything like that at all. They didn't go to any survival, winter survival school, as far as I know, um, apart from the normal ones that when they joined the Air Force or Navy or whatever they did. And um, I, uh, uh, but we did fly... Uh, we did fly the Beaver, and I was going to say the Oster. I, was, I started talking about the Oster. We, did, we didn't take the New Zealand Antarctic Oster up to Mount Cook, uh, to the Tasman Glacier. And I, I was wondering the other day when I was fiddling around with my website, and I thought, why didn't we do that? And the reason was we didn't have a wheel ski set up. What we had was a set of wheels, which we were using at Wigram, and a set of skis which were put on when the airplane got off the ship or whatever it was, the, uh, you know, the ship down at, uh, in the Antarctic, and it just stayed, right. stayed on skis. So right. um, that wasn't going to be possible uh, because we were, what we were doing at Mount Cook each day with the Beaver was uh, taking it off the grass airfield in those days, the Mount Cook airstrip by the Hermitage, flying up to the 
up onto the, the lower slopes of the Tasman Glacier and um, doing all our takeoffs and landings up there, taking off downhill um, and uh, then swooping around and landing uphill uh, and so on and so forth. So we, we did a lot of ski stuff. Now that was on a wheel ski combination. And then uh, we would um, then head back down at the end of the day. We'd take all the pilots would come up and you know sit around in the glacier, taking their turns. Uh, and then we would go back to Mount Cook uh, airfield, and they had to remember to bring the skis up. That was <laughs> that was the key, which had to be pumped up. There was a hydraulic yep. pump in the between the seats, uh, okay, to pump the things up and land on the wheels. But as far as the Oster was concerned, um, what the Air Force did was uh, Harry Wigley. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of Harry Wigley. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Harry uh, uh, Harry Lantis at Cost, the Air Force. Uh, his one of his wheel ski Osters. Ah. Yeah. So we flew with him. He uh, he sat in the right seat of his his Oster, uh, watched us very carefully, and flew his Osters. And I tell you what, it was uh, it was a pretty exciting stuff because he'd he'd learnt so many techniques he and his guys about how to fly these underpowered little airplanes off uh, you know off the glaciers. It was incredible. Uh, and I remember clearly what he'd said. Okay, uh, now open the throttle fully, use the friction nut to hold it there, and then put your right hand because you're sitting in left seat, right hand onto the stick. Put your left hand up on the flap lever, which is. Have you ever flown an Oster? Do you? No, I haven't. Oh. Well, it was it was mainly controlled. There was a big lever above your head on the left, close to the wing, um, yeah. inside the cockpit, where you pulled the, this big lever down and it pulled the flaps down, and and then you pushed it up and it pulled the flap. The flaps went back up. It was all mechanical, and so right. off we'd go and we trundle and trundle and trundle, and. So to Harry, what, what kind of airspeed do we lift off? And he said, forget about it. He said, don't even look at the airspeed indicator. It means nothing. <laughs> he said, it's got no, because it'll never probably go above 30 or whatever it was. I don't know. And he said, okay. He said, when it sort of feels about right, he said, pull both sticks back. In other words, pull full flaps and stick hard back. And, yeah. and as soon as it comes unstuck, now we're, we're taking off downhill, as soon as it comes off the snow, slam the flaps back up again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, it, it's just amazing. So uh, now all these things start coming back to me. But flying with Harry was, uh, I mean, what a, what a hoot that was. Um, so anyway, so I had, I had the background of, uh, of actual snow operations. And I don't know what the Tasman, the height up there at the Tasman was probably 6,000 feet or something like that. But. You know, the airplanes, the Beaver performed extremely well. I mean, it was built for that kind of environment. Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And was the, um, was the Otter much different to fly from the Beaver? Was it a... a, a it was like a big version. It was really, in all ways, it was bigger um, and uh, uh, it had some pitch issues that you could screw, screw yourself up with. Um, when you when you started putting the flap down, it uh, the tail tail not the tail plane, but I guess it was a, it was a, a trim on the back there would actually go to compensate for 
a pitch down uh, situation. I know a couple of the U.S. Navy guys uh, eventually crashed airplanes, one in Christchurch, where they taught me to fly it. I actually flew it off uh, of Christchurch in 1961. They checked me out there and signed me off. Uh, but it was a big... Um, I mean, it got along at about the same speed. Uh, the uh, three-bladed prop, uh, same as a Harvard engine, I guess a 550-whatever, uh, Pratt & Whitney Wasp, and uh, but it had this reduction gear on it, so the, the blades were you know, bigger. Uh, like the Beaver, it had a fuel dilution system in it, uh, very necessary in extreme cold temperatures, like in Canada and obviously down in the Antarctic, where that before you shut down, uh, you uh, shut the engine down, you squirted a bunch of gasoline uh, through this dilution system into the oil tank, right? And so that the oil was very much more fluid and wasn't going to freeze up and right. uh, when it was sitting there. And then when you started the thing up again, if, if you hope, hoped that was going to start, uh, you had to burn that gasoline out of the oil, uh, running at a certain... There was a whole lot of requirements of how you set the thing up. But at least the, um, the Beaver, the Otters, because they were U.S. Navy, they had, uh, they had a TAC-N, I believe, in them, if I remember correctly, uh, they had a, a really good HF set uh, with a trailing in antenna, uh, which you know, you'd, you'd unwind. Uh, and what we'd do is actually, if we were on the ground, we'd pull the thing out and lay it on the snow for some distance back, and it would work pretty well. But it was a single sideband, something not the old Marconi stuff off the Titanic, which we'd, we'd had in the New Zealand airplanes. Uh, <laughs> and it had a very nice... Very nice compass system, uh, which uh, allowed for drift very well. It was it was like the polar path, but just a lot better. It had RMIs, a lot of stuff that I'd never really used before and seen. And uh, but flying with the guys in the C-130, of course, they explained a lot of this stuff to me. So um, as I've said about the Bristol freighter, when we eventually got to Vietnam, uh, and we were bumbling around there with just two ADFs and no DME at all, and uh, in a war zone, uh, the only thing we needed to change in there was not the aeroplane itself. There were a lot of DC-3s and DC-2s and gosh knows what, or Curtis commanders and all kinds of stuff like that, uh, packets uh, that were flying around doing stuff, but they had a modern avionics package in them. And right. uh, so, which, which the important things, TACAN, uh, uh, IFF transponder, and UHF comms, which were what they used. And, and I, they used to quote, I'd say, how to turn a, a, a pig's ear into, into a silk purse. And um, that's all you needed. And so the, I learned all about that, this American equipment in the... Uh, flying that, uh, that otter. Uh, we didn't have any long-range navigation stuff in it, but, you know, if, he, if, the, if we got into a whiteout situation or it was going to be a blizzard or whatever, we just put the airplane down on the, on the snow and uh, pin it down, put our tents out, and, and stay there until the situation changed. And you could do that anywhere, pretty much. 
particularly okay. the sea ice. Yeah. So, yeah, it was um, it was an interesting operation to say the least. And, yeah, I bet. Yeah. And you, you never had any trouble with navigation um, down there, or? Well, I I never... was I was light years ahead of these guys. Um, I mean, they um, uh, because of what I the RNCDF had, had had forced into us. In fact, Bill Cranfield was the guy that set the thing up. Bill's still alive. I think I'm one of the few people who's still, still, you and I are the only survivors out of out of that whole group. The pilots, have, you know, they've been dying off over the years, and uh, so uh, my expertise and his it was his concept of um, learning to use uh, uh, astro compasses as well to be able to get heading checks because the the variation down there. Uh, you're very close to the magnetic South Pole. Is um, could range from 50, 60, 70 degrees uh, either way in in just a few miles. So uh, the only way to be able to figure out what compass heading you were going to use was to either, if you could see a, and the Americans were quite good at this as well, uh, point the nose when before you shut down, you pointed the nose at a mountain, if you could see a mountain that was not white, you know, one with a bit of rock or something on it, and, and cage the uh, directional gyro at that point and leave it alone. You know? And when you started up, you were ready to go again. It was kind of pointing in the right direction. But if you were completely screwed up, um, you really had to get an astro compass out. And we had one in the Beaver. Uh, and you had to point the nose, you know, to, to point it towards the sun and so on. And you had to get the books out to, to figure that out. Right. Uh, so, uh, because magnetic compasses were useless. You would just forget okay. about it. They were hopeless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's one thing I was wondering about. Um, because the, the, the poles really screw them up, don't they? Yeah. Well, the, you know, the magnetic south pole is off to, off to one side. And the North Pole's the same, you know. And so um, before INS, you know, with INSs, it doesn't matter, or GPS. But before the INS really came along, uh, in those areas, you had to use something called grid navigation. And uh, it was a grid drawn on the maps. And the odd thing about that was uh, when you were heading down to the South Pole from the pole itself, from McMurdo, you actually flew a northerly heading. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> because that's the way, what they've done is they put this grid uh, structure uh, right over the bottom of the globe and uh, uh, and up through to the North Pole or something, the other way around, you know. So so you're always fly, flying 180 degrees out. But we did that, um, we would do that in the C-130s. They probably don't bother now because they've got INS. Yeah. Uh, and uh, GPS, you know, that solves all those those terrible um, variation problems. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Um, now, the, the Bristol Freighter, tell me about what was that like to fly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must have read my... I have, I have. You've, you have a strong opinion of the Bristol Freighter. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. I really did. And I, I flew it for 4,000 hours. And wow. uh, 
4,000 hours of agony. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, that story I told, which dates back to 96, and I was in Kansai and, uh, on a long layover uh, with a 747. And uh, uh, I was you know, looking at this accident forum, mainly because of TWA 800, because we were flying their sister ships, and I wondered what they were going to do. I thought they were going to ground us all. But in there was the last Bristol freighter crashes, and I thought, oh, oh, this is interesting. And I looked at it, and here's all these bleeding hearts uh, talking about these two British Airways guys that managed to swing, swing the thing on takeoff. They probably didn't lock the tail wheel. Uh, which you had to do. It had a little solenoid on it, and they lost control of the thing, and it cra- <laughs> it wrapped itself around whatever on the ground. And uh, so there's all this input, and I thought, I can't, I don't believe this. And so that's why I wrote that scathing comment, and you know, it's tongue in cheek, but um, about uh, how much I loved flying at C C-130s, which were brilliant in comparison uh, to flying the Bristol Freighter. It was not an easy airplane to fly. Uh, I'd have to admit, uh, the one trip I flew in the right seat as a co-pilot, untrained, in the Hastings, was even worse. Um, Because the Hastings, the nose sat way, way up in the air. And it was a big big tail dragger. Uh, But it was a little bit more sophisticated, I guess. The uh, Bristol Freighter was was just hopeless. Uh, it, It had... Its control inputs were were really strange. It had a spring tab on the elevator, so if you suddenly close to the ground, you you thought, oh, you know, I'm going to crash, as normally it was, and you pulled it back too quickly, the spring tab would be overcome, and it'd put in even more input, and you'd end up disappearing up into the sky again, you know, like a I said, a spring-heeled rat, and. Yep. Uh, uh, and then, of course, what do you do? Do you, do you go round or um, put on the power and go round, or you just let it crash back onto the ground? In most cases, it was better to let it crash back on. Uh, and a lot of the strips we operated in, onto, in and out of, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, which is actually remarkable. You've got to say anything good about the airplane. Well, three thousand feet long, and uh, we're talking. What forty degree temperatures, uh, thirty six, thirty seven degree Celsius, and yeah. um, uh, we'd get off the ground and um, and we'd landing it. You'd have to land in the right place, right over the fence, and dump it on the ground, because the brakes were uh, pneumatic. Believe it or not, I, I I just how how you could ever design something. There were really no hydraulics in the airplane that I can remember. I don't think there were. It was okay. it was a pneumatic system, and there were air bladders in there that just went onto the brakes. Well, of course, if you if you jam them down too hard, you in in those kind of heat, the heat from the um, from the disc and everything else would just uh, would burn the burn the lining out. So you had to be careful in both ways. I mean, it's devil in the deep blue sea. You know whether you went off one end of the runway or crashed at the the following end. But we all managed to handle them pretty well. Uh, but like the Harvard, I guess anybody who hadn't flown a Harvard uh, would have been, or a Tiger Moth or a Mustang, 
would have said, uh, gone into the Bristol freighter, and, and they wouldn't have a clue how to handle it. Um, yeah. Particularly in a swing, there's a swing on takeoff, uh, and a swing, you could swing on a landing. Crosswind landings were, on a narrow runway, were very exciting. Uh, if it was short, or even long, actually, for that matter. Well, you'd go into Vietnam and a place like Vung Tau, which only had a runway, I think, was couldn't have been more than 100 feet wide, not the normal, you know, 150. And uh, it was always a crosswind there coming in from the beach. And uh, that was that was tricky. It was much easier in the C-130, as it right. turned out. So, But it was... Uh, you know, I, I, I tried to enjoy it, um, but as I've said on my website, uh, the best part about the Bristol Freighter was, was not flying. It was actually the job right. because right. We, did, we did some great stuff with it and nothing really ever went wrong with it. I mean, there was nothing to go wrong. There was no gear retraction system because it didn't retract. Uh, there were no hydraulics, so you're never bleeding hydraulics all over the place. And there was no air conditioning. So, um, and it, but it was noisy. It was noisy and hot and cold. You know, hot in the tropics, cold yeah. down in New Zealand. Um, right. But it was definitely a challenging machine. But I, how people could love it, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, it, was, it was fantastic. And then, of course, as I've already said about Vietnam, uh, thanks to uh, Hutchins, uh, our squadron commander at the time, he went against the RNZEF uh, headquarters, who would not approve any changes, and built the stretcher case. Uh, it was on on a stretcher because we had stretchers in there for the longer flights, uh, part of its sort of Kazovac capability, and um, got the guys. They they got these parts out of this uh, ex uh, this crashed Royal Navy scimitar. They got the TACAN out of it, uh, they got the RMI out of it, they got the uh, IFF, and they got the UHF. And they put it all in the stretcher. And I guess you know, the people down in Wellington, they weren't prepared to do anything about it because probably the electrical load on the two DC generators on the Bristol Freighter weren't really going to uh, handle it. Anyway, they, they modified it and uh, never told anybody down there. Uh, and uh, he got his hand smacked for it, but he didn't care. And we were safe. I mean, I tell you, once once we had that, we could actually talk to um, the artillery people, uh, warnings and all that kind of thing, and where the air attack, ground attack was going on. Uh, we had the TACAN to tell us exactly where we were, and um, because that's how it was all done there. So... Um, as I say, it definitely turned that aeroplane uh, from uh, pig's ear into a silk purse. Uh, and I, 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 back in, in 1975, I was back there for the last days, and I've only just actually noticed it in one of my photographs. They built the whole thing properly up front, but it took them years to have it approved. And uh, the crazy thing about it was that here we were, um, going into Vietnam almost every day and back out again to all kinds of places. And uh, the Aaron City have just purchased four C uh, five C-130s, uh, P-3s, Iroquois, that had all this stuff on, right? And they were going, well, the C-130s went there occasionally, but into Saigon normally. And uh, 
they had all this equipment, but give it to us in the Bristol protest, no way. I think they, it was amazing. It was it just it's crazy. It, it, it just astounds me. But thanks to uh, his squadron leader, uh, Hutchins, he ended up senior uh, flight check guy at um, uh, Air New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, he just overrode them and just said, hey, guys, you can do, we can do this. And we just move it from one aeroplane to another, uh, whichever aeroplane was going up. Uh, they just pull the stretcher out and, you know, and then plug all the stuff in into the other Bristol Frodo. Right, I got you. So um, the actual work that you guys were doing there, were you working directly with uh, the, the New Zealand Army Regiment that was there, or were you also doing flights for American um, and other allies um, units? Well, it was... Um, we were actually, because we were uh, under the command of uh, the RAF, uh, who weren't in the Vietnam War, and the British were not in it, well, it, was, it was rather odd. We were under command and control of them, but for the Vietnam operations, we had, um, they, they kind of let us off the hook, and it, was a, it became an RNCDF thing. We were, um, we were doing stuff. We'd go to Saigon. We'd go to uh, Vung Tau, uh, primarily for support of... Uh, the New Zealand uh, troops there. They were just north of there at Nui Dad. And uh, uh, we go up to Keenon and there was, uh, we, we did a lot of stuff for some New Zealand medical teams. And one of them was at Keenon and there was another one somewhere else as well. Uh, go to Nha Trang, there was, it was primarily, it was primarily New Zealand force stuff, defense. You right. know. Primarily, but we, we we did all kinds of other odd things as well. You know, we'd pick up uh, um, occasionally uh, some strippers who uh, at one of the places who wanted to. We're going to move. They were from the US or Australia or whatever, and take these strippers from one town to another where they were going to entertain the troops. <laughs> of course, New, New Zealand never knew anything about that. Of course, but no. <laughs> I don't think they ever appeared on the manifest at all. Uh, so there's a lot of odd, odd stuff like that, um, and uh, let's think. There was oh, the other reason uh, in 1960, well before the Vietnam War started, when I was first there in uh, Changi with 41 Squadron, we used to fly through Vietnam all the time. Well, we couldn't get to Hong Kong or back without doing that. Oh, okay. Uh, we we were doing what they called a Hong Kong P, which was a passenger trip. Uh, which was mainly for Royal Air Force, uh, British forces, and so on. And we would carry up to, I guess, 30 passengers. I think we had 36 seats in there. Uh, and we normally went up. Uh, if we had a full load like that, we would go uh, uh, Changi across to Borneo, uh, to RAF Labuan, which is in North Borneo, uh, refuel, and then go to... Uh, the U.S. Air Force Base at, um, which is now closed down, uh, uh, at uh, North of Manila, Clark Air Force Base. That was. Oh yes. Yep. Yeah. And um, so we'd go in there, spend the night, and uh, uh, then we'd fly across to Hong Kong. Uh, now, why did we do that? Okay, uh, it was all a question of having nowhere to go if you got to Hong Kong. And couldn't land because of the weather. Uh, the only alternate, the closest alternate was in Taiwan. 
but because we walked for the, worked for the British, uh, we were not allowed in there. Uh, right. I think, because, if I remember correctly, the British had recognised Red China, and so the Taiwanese didn't want any British operation in there. So, so we couldn't go to Taiwan, which would only have been two hours, I guess, uh, after a miss at uh, Hong Kong. Yeah. And so we'd have to go back to Clark. And so the first flight that I did, and I was getting checked out, uh, and I was actually, it was on my 21st birthday. Um, we, um, we came out of Clark, uh, got to Hong Kong, and the old runway, way down in the hills there, only ADFs, there were no VORs, DMEs, ILSs, all that stuff. You, um, you actually had to do an approach that um, you lined up two ADFs and you got down to, I think it might have been 800 feet um, because there were a bunch of islands there that you couldn't see the runway. Uh, yeah. But there was a, uh, a, uh, a cliff face that had been painted with stripes or something. I, no, I think it was just painted white. And you had to see that to continue past this last NDB. And if you saw that, chances are you, know, you got there and then you did a hard left turn and, and you came in through the gap, uh, couldn't see the hills on either side, and uh, hopefully you'd see the runway lights and away you'd go. So we got, did, get, did all that. We got down to 800 feet, didn't see a thing. So back to Manila we had to go. Eight and a half hours total or eight, might be nine. And uh, that was uh, then came back the next day, and that that was my twenty first birthday. We actually got in, but um, going back from Hong Kong for years, uh, and this is as I say before the Vietnam War, uh, we would go through um, Saigon. Uh, we would fly from Hong Kong uh, down into Saigon, and then Saigon to Changi, all in one day. Right, uh, long long flights, but um, and occasionally we'd go to. What became Da Nang, it was called Touraine in those days. And the French were still there. I mean, the French uh, paratroopers who were training um, the South Vietnamese in those days. So that's kind of fascinating. So a lot of interesting, interesting stuff. As I say, the airplane might have been a bit of a crock, but gosh, we went, we went to all kinds of fantastic places, including Kathmandu uh, you know, in the 60s, supporting uh, Hillary. Uh, oh, right. The building here for schools and so on, because he was losing staff at Calcutta on the ships. Uh, so he talked to the Prime Minister um, and said, hey, at the time, whoever that was, and said, hey, how about, you know, he was ex Air Force, of course. He was a, he'd be yeah. a navigator. That's right. He said, how about the squadron up there at, uh, what's your name? Get them to fly up to Kathmandu. Um, and we, with all my stuff. So the stuff would be landed at uh, in Singapore, and we'd put it all on board, and off we'd go. Uh, we'd have to go to Car Nicobar, and then Nicobar Islands, uh, refuel, then to Calcutta, spend one hellish night there, and uh, then we go up to Kathmandu, and the runway was very short in those days. So that was pretty exciting. We'd spend a few days up there and then come back. So that was a pretty regular run when he was building the schools and the hospitals. Okay. Yeah, a lot of. So you got you got much time to spend with him socially as well. Or... Um, I met him a few times. Um, he uh, he knew I was a climber um, later on, and in fact, uh, 
uh, first time I met him, I was uh, at a dinner night at the officer's mess at Fenuapai, and um, I was a, just a pilot officer at the time, I guess on the Bristol freighter, or flying yep. officer, and uh, he came along as the guest. And I, I always remember, and I'm six foot tall, or was, I think I'm getting a little shorter now, and he was six foot five, I believe, or it might have been even six six. But I always remember looking up at him. And years and years later, uh, I'm going climbing in Nepal, and I'm at uh, Lukla, at the 9,000 foot uh, airfield up there. And uh, I'm 52 at that point, and I'm going to climb a reasonably big mountain. And I see all these Nepalese Sherpas and so on all racing around, and this airplane lands, and uh, Twin Otter or whatever it was, and he, um, he emerged. And uh, they put scarves over him and all kinds of things. It was, it was great. So I went across, wedged my way through and said, uh, Sir Ed, you know, it's, it's, it's me. I haven't seen you for a while. And uh, he said, oh, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, uh, I'm actually going climbing. I said, I, I think I'm getting too old for it. And he said, you're never too old for climbing. But the thing I noticed was I was looking down at him. He'd, he'd, ah. Yeah, he'd really shrunk. Well, we were about the same height. So I guess that's in store for me as well. I think that's uh, right. people tell me so. And I'd taken him out to dinner, my wife and I, in um, Singapore, uh, shortly before his wife was killed, which is really uh, was so sad because she was with yeah. us. She and Peter and, and Sir Ed and myself and my wife, and uh, I, I nudged him out of the uh, uh, high commission early and said, I'll take you down, we'll go downtown and, have some uh, food on the, you know, an orchard road on the on the side of the road there, and he said, "Oh, great, that'd be great." So, but two two weeks later, um, she was dead, and uh, of course the daughter was dead, one of the daughters, and he never really recovered from that. So sad, so sad. But what a great guy, you know, tremendous, tremendous individual, and uh, yes. yeah. a great a great character for um, uh, you know for selling New Zealand as a because he was such a um, self-deprecating guy, you know. He, he he did all these wonderful, wonderful things, and uh, he, but he was fun to see. And of course, I he knew me uh, through. Uh, uh, I mean, I could talk to him about his mentor, who'd been uh, been our instructor, and uh, down there in fifty fifty nine, a lot of his other people as well, and the people he'd had in the Antarctic. Um, when they ra did the race to the pole, so um, yeah, yeah, all right. Interesting days. Yeah, um, the the flights from Singapore up to Vietnam. How long would it take a freighter to to do that? Um, uh, that, that trip. Well, it's probably uh, maybe maybe four hours. Uh, we we. Uh, we tilled along at about 135 knots, was the TAS. So um, I think it was about four hours, four and a half maybe to Saigon. And uh, that would be about right. Okay. Um, I mean, everywhere was slow, unbelievably slow. Yeah. It took forever. <laughs> and uh, particularly, well, of course, you don't get, fortunately, you don't get too many strong winds. But uh, one of the other things I was, I was thinking about today was uh, the, uh, uh, we had no weather radar. And, um, of course, we couldn't have climbed over thunderstorms anyway. And uh, but we, we didn't even know how to get around them. I mean, it was just we used to either pick the darkest place or the lightest place. 
depending. And uh, if you're already in uh, what appeared to be a thunderstorm, you didn't actually head for a white place because that probably was another cumulonimbus, the side of one. Um, generally, the heavy, the darkest place was where the heaviest rain was. Um, we didn't get too much, of course, being in the Far East, uh, along close to the equator, you didn't get a lot of hail, uh, not down that low, but you got a tremendous amount of water. Uh, right. And it, it used to seep in around the uh, instrument panel and, and pour on your feet. And, uh, you know, it just oozed in around all the instruments. Fortunately, none of them were electrical. <laughs> and, uh, and down the back, uh, the center wing, which ran right through the cabin, uh, across the cabin, uh, it used to leak there as well. And so all our passengers, military, uh, obviously mostly, they would have their umbrellas out <laughs> sitting in the seats. <laughs> As the water poured down, and I, oh, no. I tell you, it was uh, just unbelievable. I, I just every thunderstorm, I must have gone through every darn one that ever came up when I was airborne, and uh, each of them more frightening than the others, particularly when the lightning was was flashing as well. And uh, yeah, so I mean, the thing was primitive, and yet for years and years, the squadron. And all the people in it, you know, we 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 survived all that, and we did it all all the time, year after year after year. My dad had been there, what, 1955. That's when the squadron first went there, and uh, they lost one aeroplane um, in '56, I believe it was, uh, and that was just part of part of error. Uh, crashed into the jungle uh, during a supply drop, and. Uh, uh, you know, a story in itself, um, but it was a new squadron commander and he had some path news or whatever outfit from England and they wanted to fly on board this airplane during this operational supply drop up in uh, close to Ipoh in uh, Malaya, on the Malayan Peninsula. And um, he ran into, went up, I guess, the wrong valley and couldn't turn fast enough and uh, during the turn you know, he ended up going into the tree into the uh, high foliage but one guy survived amazing uh, uh, a British army guy he uh, he fell out and fell into the trees and, and actually survived the rest were killed so that was I, I think they lost another where was the other one we ended up losing there'd been two airplanes lost I think early on and they'd originally got 12 airplanes so we ended up with 10 and um, only two of them had dual controls, which I, a lot of people find fascinating because you only had one pilot. The guy in the right seat was actually a navigator, and all he had was a uh, a table top. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the signaler sat behind with all his steam-driven equipment back there. And uh, but they're all professionals, you know. It was that that's they were their jobs. Uh, it, I never realised that they were single pilot operation. This seems incredible. Yeah, it does. I mean, <laughs> as the years went by, and somebody said, "Oh, uh, you can't fly this uh, this little fourteen thousand pound whatever uh, single pilot IFR," and I said, "What? 
Well, what's wrong with single pilot? <laughs> no engineer. You know, I mean, yeah. it was we just took it for granted, and it was a forty-four thousand pound airplane. Now, you know, DC three, of course, had uh, pilot and co-pilot seats, and uh, but the Bristol Freighter, uh, two of them had dual, and uh, which we obviously used for dual checkouts and things like that. But when we went to Borneo in 1965, uh, and I was on operations there for a year off and on and uh, airdropping uh, in Sarawak out of Kuching, um, they, the RNZF headquarters in Wellington said, uh, you know what, maybe we should have two pilots in here because these people are firing at them, you know, and uh, which they were. If you got too close to the border, uh, the Indonesians were shooting at you. So they... Um, they said, we better have two pilots. So what they did was um, they converted another couple of airplanes and um, not particularly well, I must admit, because I remember the control column was in one place and the rudder pedals were in another place. <laughs> you had to fly. But you were there as a safety pilot. That was basically it. And we used to put the navigator downstairs. Um, so we did that for a year. And uh, I... Uh, I did about 160 missions, I think. Uh, you know, I was also instructing at the time. I was checking people out over there. So, um, and I think we. So, actually, where, hmm? where were you actually based when you were operating in Borneo then? Um, uh, RAF Kuching, um, the town of Kuching. Uh, the RAF okay. had a base there. And uh, we would come across for like 10 days at a time from Singapore. Uh, we changed the airplane and the crew across at the same time. Ah, right. So we do an airplane change and a crew change, both ground and, and um, because it was pretty intensive, we, we would fly every morning between 8 and about 1 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon on numerous missions. And uh, the missions were only, I don't know, the flight time was probably 30 minutes. Uh, it was all VMR, uh, VFR. I mean, you had to, um, there was no, nobody could light up a, some kind of GPS or anything like that. It was just, um, uh, we just got to know the terrain and uh, right. a lot of it was on hills and we knew where the, uh, we knew how to identify the drop zones. Uh, the reason all that airdropping was going on then, the RAF had so few helicopters uh, and uh, this is all before Vietnam, of course. And, right. um, and we didn't have any helicopters and the RAF had very, very few. So, uh, it was all airdrop, and uh, uh, so yes, we were. Um, it was a, the whole thing was a Royal Air Force uh, British Army operation, and uh, we were totally under command of uh, uh, command and control of for those operations uh, of uh, of the RAF, and uh, also you know briefings from from the army. Yep. We were supporting all the army people out there, the the Australians, uh, the New Zealanders, uh, the um, and the British, uh, the, the, the SAS guys, because the, the three SAS teams were there, so hiding somewhere. I mean, they'd, they'd disappear for weeks in, in over the Indonesian border. Um, we'd do a bit of dropping to them uh, on the quiet. But um, so these various forts, jungle forts that they'd cut out of the jungle, that's where we'd do the drops. And uh, round and round and round, you know, parachutes, about 200 to 300 pounds uh, on each load and just pushed out the back door. The door would be actually taken off before we got airborne. Uh, 
and uh, so it was, it was pretty drafty in there. Uh, not that that mattered because it was so damn hot. Right. Um, you know, and uh, it was great operation, uh, very successful. You know, we um, we enjoyed it. Our RAF counterpart uh, initially they had Hastings there, forty eight squadron RAF, uh, but for some reason they took them away and uh, they had Argosies. RAF Argosies from uh, 215 Squadron. Right. And uh, they were Changi based as well. And so they would uh, they would come across and they had an aeroplane there. They'd do the big drops one ton at a time out the back. And um, and we would go round and round circles dropping out these 200 to 300 pound loads all on shoots. But then, you know, when that finished uh, and uh, Sakano disappeared, uh, or gave in, or whatever happened. Um, we end up then, you know, doing much, many more operations up into uh, uh, into Vietnam. Right, right. So these drops that you're doing, that was dropping in uh, food and ammunition, was it? To the yep, yeah, yep. yeah. In fact, uh, a lot of ammunition, uh, mainly uh, howitzer shells. Uh, they had these uh, little, whatever they call them, pack howitzers, and quite often. Uh, it, the one very close to the border, uh, Pang Ammo, I think it was called, the strip uh, or the drop zone. They said, "Can you come around a bit faster? We're running out of shells here, and they're firing at us." <laughs> I said, "Can you tell your dispatchers? Forget about the food. Just start dropping these howitzer shells." You know? <laughs> wow! I, I mean, I never thought of the. Uh, thank God, you know, we never had a some kind of accident or, or, or fired on. While we were dropping all that ammunition, yeah. uh, we would drop uh, live chickens to the Gurkhas. Uh, that was fascinating uh, because they, these chickens were put in a in a wooden crate with uh, s some of the sides were open. That was like a grill of wood, and they'd have a base where they put a whole lot of gravel uh, in there to give it give it some weight. And uh, on numerous occasions. The uh, the gravel would fall out uh, as it went out the door. <laughs> Next time it came around, the chute was still there. The chickens are inside, but he's squawking because they had to be live. The reason they had to be live was that uh, their uh, their killer, you know, they, uh, had to do the job on the uh, on the strip uh, when when they landed. Uh, well, they would if if the, if the crate came down suddenly. Say the chute candled. And it crashed on the 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 unit uh, butcher um, would come running out and have to cut the throats out there on the uh, where, where, <laughs> where it dropped before the thing died. Uh, but otherwise, they floated. I don't know where they floated to uh, if, if all the gravel came out. So we did that often, and uh, the Gurkhas, you know, really appreciated that. Right. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. Uh, so, from from the freighter, you went on to the C-130, didn't you? Yes. Uh, what a happy day that was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, the difference is chalk and cheese. Absolutely unbelievable. And um, when I finished my second tour at 41 Squadron, which was in 68, early 68, I'd been there, I think, three years that time, two and a half years or something. They, they sent me back to... Back to Forty Squadron and uh, to the C one thirties, and the C one thirties had been operating for what about two and a half years, I guess, at that point. 
and uh, uh, the course was fantastic. Uh, what uh, the RNZEF, uh, whoever set the whole thing up, the purchase of that, uh, did a really good deal because they, instead of saying, well, we'll, we'll set up our own training system, you know, and we'll have all our own training manuals and we'll, we'll, we'll do this and that and everything else. Well, you know, such a small Air Force, the smart thing to do was to uh, just get a total training package from the United States Air Force, which is what they did. Uh, and the airplanes, uh, which were H models, they, some of the first off the line at uh, um, Marietta in Georgia, yeah. uh, and they just bought them complete. Uh, unlike the REF, which were getting their C-130s at the same time, they uh, they decided to put Marconi radio equipment, I believe, in, in theirs, which turned out to be a bit of a disaster. They had a lot of trouble with it, where we just accepted all the Collins stuff, uh, just like the U.S. military. And we had their flight manuals, uh, which were kept up to date by the USAF and uh, their system. Uh, and all the mods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we just did the American thing, and it was great. The training aids were unique for that time. This was 1968. Um, it had lights would come on on this big panel and switch the fuel and you'd do this and electrics, and you could learn it all in the classroom. It was wonderful. Um, and we, uh, instead of all the kind of examination stuff um, ground examination stuff that we'd, we'd been doing in the past, very much like the CAA did for quite a number of years afterwards, uh, was not essay questions. It was true-false or multi-choice, just like the Americans do. It made it so easy, not easy to, you still had to do the work, but it was easy if you were an instructor, which I became. I became uh, the training officer on the squadron uh, after about a year and uh, putting People like um, uh, Keith, uh, oh, we talked about him the other day. Flies. Oh, Keith, Keith, yeah, Keith was in one of my first classes, I think. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was so so much fun to actually do the training. Uh, of course, we didn't have a simulator, so we had to do all the conversion flying in the airplane itself, uh, which was no hardship really. Uh, you know, just burning up gas, but uh, it was that was cheaper than doing anything else. So we could have gone across to Richmond uh, with the Australian Air Force in, uh, out of Sydney there. But this, this was an E model and it, it was slightly different. Uh, yeah. The H was you know, quite advanced. But everything worked well. I mean, it was just a delight to fly, of course, absolute delight. Uh, the air conditioning, of course, the, uh, the lack of noise, the, um, the, the amount of power. I think it was really the, the sense of the power in this airplane uh, and the instant speed control. We, we used to joke about uh, how we could uh, just get hold of the throttles and push them forward, just a nudge, and you could get two knots or three knots, pull them back, just a nudge, or you know, put them right forward, and it almost instantaneously get 30 knots. Um, right. It was interesting, the airspeed indicator, I don't know if they've, they've probably changed all that, uh, was like a Model T. Uh, it had um, it had a little drum for uh, the hundreds. Uh, let's see, yeah, the hundreds. And 
uh, you could you could fly it two knots either way, and it's almost instant control. And the, the problem, the reason was, is that the engines, um, uh, the turbines, uh, are turning over and at a hundred one hundred percent. You know, once you uh, once you go into flight mode, you drop them down uh, off the ramp, and you're not in beta mode. You go into this uh, uh, alpha mode or whatever it's called, flight mode, uh, on the ground, and they all go to 100%. And all you're doing when you move that throttle forward or back is the blade angle just automatically changes. So it's just a huge bite, and there's no spooling up required. It's just that blade angle changing. Uh, just incredible, absolutely incredible. Uh, and all the days of flying around in a Bristol freighter, uh, and I guess the guys in the Hastings, you know, you shut an engine down and you've got a problem, um, particularly in the Bristol freighter, heavy load, you're probably going to go into the sea. Um, whereas you lose an engine on the Bristol, the C-130, say climbing through 10,000, 15,000 feet, um, and, uh, and you have to shut an engine down, Air traffic controllers say, uh, "What are you going to do?" They say, uh, "We're just going to continue to uh, our flight level and uh, continue to our destination." And um, it was just unbelievable. So the yeah. the combination of the power and the systems, and then particularly the avionics in it. I mean, it just it, it was light years ahead. And of course, they still use them. The H models are used down here at uh, my local at Reno. Uh, National Guard, and uh, I bet they've they may have modified them somewhat. Um, I understand the New Zealand ones have been modified to probably glass cockpit or whatever. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, the Americans used to call it the can-do airplane, and it still really is. It is the can-do airplane. Uh, it could do anything, and uh, all the short strip stuff um, that you could do with it. Throw parachutes out the back. Throw. Uh, uh, big containers, uh, marvelous, marvelous airplane, and uh, so they were good years, really good years. And of course, we flew it around the world. Uh, and when we came into the U.S., we could actually talk to people and use their VOR DMEs and their ILSs and all that right. stuff. Right. Um, which, incidentally, I might add that um, the VORs uh, and DMEs that uh, showed up in New Zealand, we took quite a few of those back from here uh, in our C-130s. That ground, those ground VORs uh, were taken back in our airplanes. They um, would go to Cedar Rapids, the home of Columns, uh, and pick up a complete ground VOR thing and take it back to New Zealand. So here's the 60s where, you know, the ground infrastructure in New Zealand is still as bad as when I was flying Harvards, pretty much. Um, there weren't VORs, there weren't VOR DMEs, there weren't ILSs. And uh, so we took all that, a lot of that stuff back. Uh, we also took the, a lot of the, um, the Iroquois back as well. Ah, right, okay. The airplane was actually, or the Iroquois, I think, was designed around the C-130, not as far as its width. Uh, yep. You could take the blades off and the rotor off and uh, the structure, and and put them all into into one C-130, and and so we would pick those up down at Fort Worth, and take them back. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic time, absolutely fantastic, um, the best of years really in 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 terms of 
Air Force flying for me. It really was. The actual um, squadron itself, compared with 41 Squadron, were the people a lot happier in general? Or, I mean, was 41 Squadron a happy squadron in itself, or did everybody feel about the freighters like you did? Oh, no, no, no. 41 was always a happy squadron. It was, okay. it was a great posting. It was just marvellous. And, and uh, I'm, I'm one of the dissenters, I guess. And uh, <laughs> the, the navigators, see, the navigators loved it. Uh, and the signalers, because the signalers, for a start, they didn't have a job in the C-130s. They weren't required. Uh, we had single sideband uh, HFs and all that kind of stuff. So their job was over. Uh, the navigators, uh, they, they actually preferred, I was talking talking to some of them the other day, they, they give me a bit of a hard time because I've written what I've written, and yeah. which was a bit tongue-in-cheek. But... Um, but they loved the Bristol freighters because they could actually really do navigation. And, uh, but they just expected to go back, of course, to 40 Squadron. That was the next move for them. You'd do your time at 41, uh, then you'd come back to, um, to 40 Squadron and go on to the C-130, which from a navigator's point of view, I mean, it had much better equipment. I don't know why they didn't like it uh, as much. Um, I don't, I don't understand that. But uh, of course, as I say, the signal is gone. But those those navigators actually became not in the air force, although they may have now. I, they probably call them something else now. But um, systems operators or whatever. Uh, interesting enough, INS was was coming was really close. It was being used in. There was a very crude INS in the P threes one of the early kind of mechanical ones. And, uh, but uh, with the advent of the DC-10, 747, and the L-1011 in the very early 70s, that was the end of navigators completely. Because in, you know, in New Zealand and Qantas, uh, and I guess uh, British Airways, uh, they all used, because of the long overwater stuff, they had navigators in DC-8s. Um, so RNZEF navigators could always go there and yep. REF, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There was a job for them. But with the advent of those three big airplanes, the wide bodies, they put the INS in there, the, um, initially the mechanical stuff and then, uh, then the gyro, the laser gyros. Game over. Not required anymore. And um, they could put their sun guns away. Didn't require them anymore. You didn't need a plotter. Um, but it was interesting when, um, if you wanted to be a captain at, uh, on the DC-8 at Air New Zealand, you had to do a flight navigator license, uh, right. which included all that stuff, you know, how to use a sun gun and, um, uh, and so on. Um, I never got to that stage. I, I did do the, my ATP based on some of that, uh, my New Zealand ATP back before I left the Air Force, actually. But um, that was it. So in my thesis that I have about navigation and pre-GPS world, really it's navigation in a pre-INS world. And uh, because INS changed it all. Uh, the, only, the interesting thing about INS, of course, is that you've got to tell it where it is at the beginning and uh, where the airplane is. This is before GPS and because uh, GPS can tell it now. But then... Up until actually I left uh, UPS flying uh, 
747s with three INSs in, laser gyro INSs, uh, you had to make sure you had the right lat long in um, when you started before you actually started moving the airplane. And right. uh, because it was very hard to fix it in the air, it just wouldn't work well. But after that, it knew where it was with a certain amount of drift. And uh, yeah. um, but that changed everything, you know, for. Uh, in, in, in that particular moment, the in the 1970 into the very early the early 70s, uh, long range navigation was all over for professional navigators. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, what were the most interesting loads that you carried in the C-130s? Um, good question. Uh, probably. Uh, I would think uh, the most memorable were um, carrying the SAS, New Zealand SAS guys, okay. and, and uh, out of New Zealand, and uh, we would um, we would go to Fenua to Alice Springs, uh, spend the night there, and then we'd take them directly to uh, Vungtau. Uh, wouldn't even go to Saigon, and uh, these guys were. I remember they were. Probably some of them were on their second and third tour, and when they got out of that airplane, they they loved it. They were back home, you know. Yeah. They were they were there, guns ready, and uh, big grins on their faces. You know, half of them Maoris, and and, yeah. and uh, I think, wow, the if all the troops in Vietnam were like this, we would easily win. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, yeah, they were they were really something. Um, the the other crowd, uh, the army fellows for the first whatever it was, the first battalion or infantry battalion, uh, they always used to the new guys used to get into trouble at Alice Springs. Uh, the police would bring them out the next morning, you know, three or four that they'd throw it into jail and uh, <laughs> deliver them to the airplane out of and say. Uh, Captain, uh, we've got some of your passengers on board here. We had to lock them up for the night because they were, we would always get into trouble. The first time out in New Zealand, that was the problem. Right. And uh, so they get into the bars there with uh, in Alice Springs and they tear the place apart. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. So, But not the SAS guys. Uh, so they were, they were great, great caring people like that. Uh, the sad times were um, coming back uh, with army people uh, with caskets on the back, you know, sitting, they'd be sitting on the ramp and uh, tied down and uh, these guys, you know, all pretty morose and they never got into trouble on their way back when we went to Alice Springs. All they wanted to do was get back to New Zealand. So that, that was tough, you know, carrying, carrying the uh, caskets. Right. Um, yeah. But otherwise, uh, uh, oh, one one interesting one. Uh, do you know Queenstown Airport recently? Were you flown in there? I haven't actually flown in there, but I've seen a lot of videos of it. Right. Well, you know, it's day only, uh, and uh, I guess you can fiddle around with daylight, whatever it's called, uh, last light or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, I was there with um, supporting the Queen's entourage back. I guess, and, and whenever it was, it might have been, must have been the early seventies. And uh, uh, we had the royal car, the Rolls Royce, in the back, uh, 
and uh, it was getting later and later. Everything was running late. The rest of the crowd had gone. And, you know, I'm looking at it, it's getting awful dark. And I said, uh, we're not supposed to take off here in the dark, are we? <laughs> said, well, I don't know. Let's, and I remember, you know, getting, getting started and out there as fast as possible and climbing straight up to where the hill is. There's a big hill on, on, when you're heading out east, yeah, yep. east, and, and having to turn to, to miss this. And uh, I could just see it. I, I mean, it was certainly... It was still visual. There was no cloud or anything like that. So that was it. Get the job done. And otherwise, you know, we would have been had to wait overnight. Right. But um, I, it just occurred to me. The best thing I ever did with the C-130 was I was in Bangladesh during the uh, changeover there. I, was, I ran the second operation there in uh, uh, running uh, flour and... Uh, soy mash and all kinds of stuff, thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, sacks of it uh, on relief operations. This was at the, uh, the beginning of 1972. The eastern Pakistan had become Bangladesh, and uh, the, uh, the Indians' uh, military had gone in there, and apart from killing a bunch of people and, and so on, they they bombed all the runways, and uh, uh, you know bombed them one third down at each end, and uh, we had to operate into those out of Dhaka uh, in in Bangladesh. So I was there for six or seven weeks, I think, and running the operation, um, and we were going down to Chittagong and bringing up relief supplies and for all the refugees, and then we were going to Calcutta and coming back in and uh, the Russians showed up as well and that was interesting we we were staying in the same hotel with the Russians ah. and uh, you could tell you could tell they were they were obviously Air Force Russian Air Force and this is yeah. 1972 so the Cold War is still definitely on yeah and uh, we we got I managed to take over the top floor of this fancy hotel the only fancy hotel in town and we had our antennas and so on up there for communicating with New Zealand and Singapore and so on. And uh, bloody Russians showed up and they started pulling our antennas down and throwing, throwing them over the side. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we were in uniform. I mean, we used to travel in the elevators with them and we'd be yeah. in uniform and uh, with our New Zealand patches. And these guys, they looked like KBG thugs, you know, the whole lot of them. Yeah. And uh, not very friendly people. And I, we'd set up a badminton court as well down on the grounds, and we caught them playing badminton on our. I don't know if they stole our bloody rackets or whatever they did, and so that was uh, we we got stuck into them over that as well. So uh, it, it was it was a pretty fascinating six weeks um, there, unbelievable. But we did have uh, just a, a side note on the way up. Uh, we had an explosive decompression. Uh, in the airplane, and uh, I wasn't flying. I was sitting one of the other pilots. Maybe we had three pilots, uh, three pilots, three co-pilots, or something, I, something like that. And I was, I was just sitting on the rack at the back and uh, seat. And we were at twenty-four thousand feet or thereabouts, so almost at full differential. And uh, we'd come out of Singapore and we're heading direct to Dhaka, I guess. I was going to say maybe Calcutta. And uh, we were fairly close to Butterworth, not far from 
in a Penang, Butterworth area. Uh, and there's God Almighty bang and tearing and ripping sound, and the cockpit filled with uh, uh, mist, uh, water vapor, uh, and uh, all the air started popping. Actually, one guy, his ears blew out, one of the navigators. And uh, so all this happened, and, and the guys did the right thing. We got oxygen masks on and, and, and descend, descended down to uh, whatever the safety altitude was, probably because there's a lot of hills out there, 12,000 or something like that. And uh, uh, tried to figure out what had happened. And we called, uh, called Butterworth and said, um, hey, can you send up one of your fighters? Uh, they had mirages at that stage. Uh, can you stand up one of your fighters and have a look around the airplane because something's come off? And so, this uh, very shortly, they must have been on standby. Uh, a couple of mirages showed up, and they got underneath. They, they had a look on the top, and they didn't see any panels missing there. And then they got underneath, and they said, "Oh, heck, mate, you got a bloody great hole in the in the front of your under the nose there somewhere. The whole panel's gone." Wow. Oh. And what it was, was the uh, Doppler. Uh, we had a, a, a Doppler navigation system, and this Doppler panel, which was like a fiberglass uh, honeycomb thing, had actually split and, and just uh, forced the Doppler antenna and jammed in there. Uh, it wasn't interfering. The, the um, Mirage guy said, it looks like you'd be able to get your gear down. I think they probably we dropped the gear to see whether it was going to work, and uh, we flew into Butterworth and uh, the um, landed there. Spent a couple of days, uh, or maybe only a day, and uh, our maintenance guys who were on board they said, "Oh, we can fix this. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have your Doppler, but we'll we'll build a panel." And they went to the workshops there, the RWF workshops, and they. Yeah put a panel together uh, and uh, riveted it in, and that was it. So we didn't have the Doppler from then on, but it really didn't matter. Navigator could do it without it anyway. You know? so, uh, so that was pretty exciting. It was uh, That whole Bangladesh thing was, uh, was really something. Wow, well, that's great. Um, one thing we didn't really cover, actually, was the, the vampire um, phase which would have been a bit earlier, was it? Yes, it was. And it was um, uh, what, what they did uh, for uh, people like me who'd uh, spent most of their time on uh, uh, those slow-moving pieces of junk like the Bristol Freighter, uh, <laughs> uh, and even at, at Harvard's, was they, uh, they gave you the opportunity of doing what they called a jet familiarization course. And, and it was... Um, you know, later on, of course, they you ended up you could actually fly. Let's see, was there a? Um, I, I, we never got it ended, ended up. Well, later on they got jet trainers. That's right. Yeah, but um, but anyway, the Harvard the so you went up to uh, Harkey. I was down at Wigram at the time. I was an instructor on Harvard, and um, I got to um, uh, do I think about twenty to thirty hours, twenty five hours or something like that, and we had. They had T-11s, which had uh, ejection seats in them, and then they had T-55s, which, which did not, and they were both two-seaters. Uh, so you did your time in those, and uh, then they put you in the FB-5, which was, of course, single-seat, 
no ejection seat, um, and uh, the cockpit, the front of the cockpit was actually just like a Spitfire. I mean, it, it had a Spitfire panel. And in fact, yeah. the, the control column was the same. It was one of those paddle things. Right, right. Yeah, yep. circular panel things um, with a gun switch on and all that kind of thing. Uh, i tell you what, uh, after flying tail draggers, um, that swell on takeoff and um, noisy this and that and everything else, Flying a vampire was was so sweet, just unbelievably sweet. It was yeah. so darn easy, you know. And and because things stayed straight on takeoff, uh, you could take your feet off the rudders. You know, once once you kept, once you got rudder control, well, some kind of rudder control, the wheels wheels off, you could just take your feet off the rudders, and um, you could do turns without using the rudders at all. Uh, all kinds of turns, 60, 80 degrees of bank. You know, you didn't have to crank in any rudder. Uh, right. It was it was just so fantastic. Uh, the only issue, of course, with it, uh, single seat, um, no ejection seat, you had to listen to how the guys had got out of the airplanes because they had done that on a number of occasions. You know, there'd been uh, Hutchins bailed out of a single seater um, when somebody hit him in formation. Um, he turned it upside down, I think, and just fell out. Right. Uh, others would, um, there are other ways of getting out. You could uh, crank the trim full forward and hold the stick back and make sure you had the canopy open uh, and release the harness uh, and then just let the stick go and eject yourself out, you know, with the negative G. Oh, yes, yep. Yeah. So um, you didn't spin them. Uh, in most cases, apparently, if if you spun one, uh, they wouldn't come out. All right. Yeah, but it was it was it was fun. Uh, you ran out of fuel in about an hour, uh, even if you went up to thirty thousand feet, because the darn thing burnt as much fuel on the ground taxing as it did at thirty thousand at Mark point seven five, um, and uh, <laughs> it, it, it was incredible. But it was a it was a, what, what do they call it? Not a not an axial. It was a, a uh, it's like actually just like the APU actually at a C one hundred and thirty. Oh right, yep. Yeah, centrifugal, centrifugal engine. But it, it, it was a delight, absolute delight to fly, and uh, the um, you could put tip ta uh, underslung tanks on for long range, which I did for a long nav uh, exercise in the T eleven, uh, which was which was great, but I never. Never got to do any of the applied stuff. Oh, I did aerobatics in it, of course, which was yeah. just fun. Uh, never did any uh, close formation uh, or gunnery because it had four 20, milli tw uh, four 20 millimeter cannons in it and rockets, of course, and all that kind of thing. So I, I really wish that I'd you know been able to spend more time on it. Um, and uh, but I'd got tied up in all these other things. I probably could have applied. A, friend of mine who'd been a Sunderland fellow, uh, he went and did the course and he said, I want to stay. <laughs> I, don't want to fly oh, okay. I don't want to fly Sunderlands anymore. And they, uh, they let him do that. And of course, the, the move then was on to Canberra's um, from, uh, from the Vampire. Uh, you did that first. And then, of course, eventually, as we get to 1970 or whenever it is, uh, they got the Skyhawks. I had one ride in Skyhawk with with Trevor Bland actually, and uh, oh, right. I tell you, it was a hoot. It was a hoot. 
I mean, I just can't believe it, even to this day, you know, Trevor's let me fly the thing. And uh, uh, we did, it was some kind of army exercise. We were going to beat the heck out of uh, whatever that army base is down in Christchurch. And yeah. we must have, we must have gone overhead at about 500 knots, uh, indicated. Oh, yeah, yeah indicated. It, it was, it, I think it was somewhere near there, and we were probably at, Hundred feet, <laughs> and then he pulled up, and you know we we go up vertically to thirty thousand feet in a, in a heartbeat. So I was very impressed. Uh, and fly, you know, flying with Trev, that was that was really something. Um, but those guys, I just I wanted I mentioned it the other day uh, when I went to Ahakia in nineteen fifty eight, and uh, to go onto the. Devon, do fly the Devon. Yeah. These vampire guys, a lot of them were, they, they were such a great group. I mean, they were only a couple of years senior to us, which meant in age as well. And they used to call us bog rats. You know, we were, we were the bog, <laughs> we were the bog rats. Uh, but we were so impressed with them. I mean, these guys, the people like, um, like Trevor Bland, um, uh, Colin Rudd, uh, and, uh, Buckmaster, uh, uh, a lot of these people had been on 14 Squadron in Cyprus. You must have known about the Cyprus operation, did you? The yeah, 14 yeah. were there, yeah. Well, a lot of those guys, Barry Reed was there. Uh, he became, uh, he'd been an instructor of mine down at, uh, at Wigram initially. And, uh, and then, of course, they went to, to Tinga in Singapore and they had ven uh, Venoms right. there, which was. You know, they had ejection seats, and the Venom was a hell of a powerful air aircraft. I mean, it had a power-to-weight ratio was tremendous, um, quite different. Now, of course, it had swept-back wings, leading edges, unlike the Vampire. So um, all those guys, they're all very early 20s, and uh, they were, they'd been in all these exciting places flying these airplanes that no one else was flying in those days, certainly nobody in the commercial world. So um, they were our mentors uh, on the side, even though they used to give us, call us bog rats. They, uh, I always admired them so much. Fantastic group of people. And um, all in those early stages of the jet world, you know, for New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've, um, we've talked to you for about two hours now, and um, I, I would love to come back and do another interview sometime um, in the future with your post Air Force career because that's fascinating as well. Um, would you be keen to, to do another one at a later stage? Oh, yeah, sure. Yep. Great. Yeah. Great. Okay, Dave. Well, um, yeah, I hope that uh, there's some material there. I guess that will be oh, of great interest. To... It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic stuff. I'm, I'm really pleased. Um, they, it's, uh, it's been really, really interesting to, to hear all this um, history. It's great. Thank you very much. Okay, Dave. Yeah. Take care and uh, I'll talk to you in a week and 10 days or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thanks very much, Peter. Uh, okay. Bye now. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave.